You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode 108 of the Common Descent Podcast. Today, we make our return to the subject of birds with what might be the weirdest birds, penguins. Woohoo! I'm excited to talk about penguins. Penguins are fantastic. So it has been over 70 episodes since we've done a birds-themed episode. True. 37 Evolution of Birds. That was it. So now we are back to talk about... There, I... I am on record as saying that I most of my favorite animals are ones that are highly derived, which yes. is to say, extremely weird. Yeah, specialized for something not near what the, the original purpose was. Right. My favorite group of animals are the tetrapods, famous for not having legs. Yes. That's what I'm into. So penguins are super fun. And a charismatic group of animals, and a fascinating group of animals. We will talk about... What makes penguins so weird and interesting today? We will talk about their surprising diversity, mm-hmm. more diverse than I realize they are. And we will talk about the equally surprising diversity of penguins in the fossil record and what sort of cool trends there are over the evolutionary story of penguins. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. This particular subject was also, as with all our subjects, requested, Woo! in this case, by Lydia and Larry the Creature. Good suggestion, both of you. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we get into the main topic, and before even we get to the news, one big announcement. We have a Patreon. We do. We have lots of patrons. We have so many patrons. We love the amount of support, and uh, both both emotional and financial that we receive from our patrons. It, it is fulfilling in both ways. Yeah, it really it helps keep the lights on in our hearts. This podcast is supported entirely by the funds that we raise from the donations that we get on Patreon. And our patrons get all sorts of cool goodies, bonus recordings, and opportunities to ask us questions on the podcast. There will be a patron question at the end of this episode. And if a patron signs up at a certain level, we shout their name out on the podcast in gratitude. And this time, we would like to thank Annika, Brian, Andrew, Oxalter, and Corey. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everybody. That Corey guy sounds like a cool guy, huh? He's, he's pretty, he sounds like he's probably pretty all right. <laughs> sounds like he has a cool older sibling. That's what I, that's what I would think. <laughs> thank you to all of our patrons. Hey, if you're out there and you are not yet a patron... Think about it. Helps support us. Helps support all the cool extra stuff that we do on top of the regular podcast, like going places when there's not a global pandemic happening. And you get so, some cool goodies and you get a more direct contact to us. Yeah. And since we're light on announcements this episode, I'll take this moment to remind people that other ways to support us include checking out our Zazzle store and getting merch, which also helps support the podcast lots of cool coffee mugs and t-shirts you can follow us on all sorts of places we're on social media we're on youtube Mm -hmm. Uh, all of our episodes go up there as well as some of the other videos we've done with other people and you can always send us requests and stuff or leave us reviews on itunes we get lots of great podcast reviews which also helps increase the visibility of the podcast 
So if you're looking for ways to support us, we get a lot, every now and then we'll get a, a message from someone who's like, I want to support you, but I don't have the money to be a patron. Do I leave reviews, buy yeah. a merch, follow us on social like, media? There's all sorts of ways. You listening to the podcast is amazing. So uh, no one feel like you aren't doing enough. But if you want to do more, <laughs> yeah, there's lots of options. Absolutely. Hey, you know what's another way that a person might support the podcast? By publishing some cool research for us to talk about in our news section. That is always appreciated. So, yeah, no, if you could do that for us, you get a shout out even. Every episode we like to talk about news. We pick some cool news from paleontology, evolutionary, biology, the kind of stuff that interests us to keep everybody up to date. Will, I hear you've brought two newses today. I have. I brought two. I thought one wasn't enough. Well, start with one. All right. And if we if we like it, you can if, do it. And one. if we have time, if there's <laughs> if if we have time after commercials, I want to talk about what appears to be a humongous coelacanth. I I'm ready. Right, the giant coelacanth identified from just one piece, but a particularly big one piece, which suggests mm. a very large coelacanth. Intriguing. This is research by Paulo Paulo Brito et al. In Cretaceous Research, and the article is a press release by the University of Portsmouth in phys.org. So this was a discovery by accident. They weren't looking for it. They weren't even digging for it. It was actually in a private collection. And this slab that had other fossils, I believe the other fossil was a pterosaur, cool. was brought to the researchers for identification and there's this one part that they wanted identified that the collector was hoping was the skull of the pterosaur and was disappointed because it was not the skull. I would also be disappointed. By yes, that. absolutely. It was a bunching of a bunch of tiny bones, like a, a grouping of little bones that, as they described in the article, formed like a barrel but instead of the planks of wood going up and down, if they went around the barrel. So the hmm. bones were forming this kind of barrel shape with the fragments going in a circle around the barrel shape. Okay. And this excited them because it was quickly identified as the bony lung of a coelacanth. <laughs> which is something that I don't think came up when I was learning about coelacanths particularly, that they have bony lungs. I don't huh. remember if I mentioned that or not. Someone I, remind me. Someone go back to episode 83. <laughs> we talked about coelacanths, which, by the way, coelacanths are a type of fish. Today, they're large. They're like R-sized, human-sized, deep water fish that we thought were extinct and were rediscovered in not quite the 40s. And they are also lobe-finned fish, yes. which puts them closer to tetrapods and cool for their story and taxonomic position. And cool-looking. And apparently they have bony lungs. Cool lungs. Yeah, they have bony lungs, bony structure to the lung, which is why they identified it as coelacanth, because that's a coelacanth thing. Weird. And this lung is huge as far as coelacanths go. So this fossil originally came from phosphate deposits in Morocco, found near pterodactyl remains, so Cretaceous, 66 million years old at least, and using this lung they were able to estimate the size of the fish and they said that, so today's coelacanth like i said human size couple meters mm. six foot ish at their max size not a small fish but a you know decent size but also not ridiculous right this one they estimate that it could have been about five meters long cool so 
as the article title puts it, Great White Size. That, I was just gonna I was just gonna call it the Great White Coelacanth. Yes, this is a Great White Shark sized coelacanth. Wow. If the scale is indeed accurate, right? Or based a, on this lung, or a moderate sized coelacanth with an enormous lung capacity, with really good breath holding <laughs> ability, like a stallion. This would make it by far the largest coelacanth known, mm-hmm. and is just ridiculously exciting due to that fact. Like they didn't expect to find this, and then it was utterly huge. And luckily, the collector offered to cut the lung out of the slab and donate it for free. Oh, cool. And so they were able to get a good look at it and confirm, yep, is coelacanth, does seem to be huge. And now it's going to actually go back to Morocco to be uh, stored in a museum there. Oh, excellent. In Where the, it belongs. Yeah, the Department of Geology at Hassan U- University in Casablanca. I guess that's the benefit of finding a really cool fish lung is that no matter how cool that is scientifically, you're not going to have to really fight over who gets to keep the fish lung. not a pterodactyl skull. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, giant coelacanth. I like uh, a few things about this discovery. One is I love the idea of coelacanth parts being discovered by accident where you didn't expect to find them. Yep. Because that's just a running theme with coelacanths. And it's funny that there's this this trend towards sensationalizing big things. Yes. You know, it's always the news. Biggest blah was found and biggest blah. And whenever we do an episode about a group of animals, we have this tendency to go also while we're talking about their fossil record, the biggest ones. You'll see that in this episode as well. Yep. And on the one hand, there is that sense of, okay, it's big. Sure, I guess. But there is a lot. There's interesting things to be said about that. Because that informs you on ecological significance, what role might it have been playing. It tells you that this group of animals did something different than you thought they had done in the past, which means they're Mm -hmm. more diverse. And in this particular case, it had a big lung, which I'm sure has implications for its respiration and physiology. Mm -hmm. I don't know what those implications would be, but I can only assume. Well, and I feel like the the big metric is impressive because it it is grandiose. Like we in our living lives know that big things are impressive to behold. Yeah, you it's know, cool. Even if we can't behold these living giants, knowing that they were there is impressive in our minds. Right. But also there is a a physics aspect. Like small life is more common than big life. You know, that's just that is the truth. So that's part of the reason we're more impressed when right. we get to see something big. It's rare. But also, animals have to be doing something different to get that big. Like, there are very few groups that are just commonly giant. So, that's notable. Like, what was this coelacanth eating to be able to be five meters long? Yeah, how was it? Was it swimming differently? Were you also just a slow-moving ambush predator? Or were you behaving differently because now you... That wouldn't suffice. Yeah. So, it does change things. Yes, we do mention a lot of times just because it's cool, but there is valid science behind it. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully now that people will get to go back to Morocco and find the giant coelacanth fossils. Yes, find where they lived, find a nursery. <laughs> yeah, find them still alive today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll, we'll fish them up off the coast of Africa. <laughs> well, speaking of big things, my first news today is about mammoths. 
All right, that's that's. I mean, you didn't have to one up me, but that's pretty good. Uh, man, so so much cooler than Coelacanth's <laughs> episode sixty six. We talked about elephants. That's before eighty three. <laughs> In particular, a study that finds very surprising things about the origins of our familiar mammoths, and that's not the most exciting part of the study. <laughs> This is research by Tom Vandervalk et al. Et al. Et al. Et al. This is a nature paper, so lots of et al. Yes, all the et al's. And we will link to an article in Live Science by Laura Gegel, Ancient DNA. Cool. Episode 34. We've discussed plenty of times in the past, you can get DNA from fossils going back hundreds, thousands, even hundreds of thousands of years the oldest ancient DNA ever retrieved from a fossil came from a horse in Siberian permafrost that was as old as 780,000 years. That is very, very old ancient DNA. It is not quite a million, which is very old. <laughs> Theoretically, we expect you can get older DNA. Like, like biologically, physically, it should be possible to get older dna yeah the structure should be able to last longer yeah not necessarily much older right but a million or even over a million should be possible based on studies in the past Mm -hmm. but there's just never been a fossil that has been found with dna that old until this study oh this study started out uh seeking to understand the evolution of woolly mammoths So if we go back to the Ice Age, there are two really major famous species of mammoths that get a lot of the press. Woolly mammoths, which were woolly, lived predominantly in very high latitudes, and Columbian mammoths, which lived farther south typically and were a bit bigger. Mm -hmm. Those two species are thought to both be descended from the earlier steppe mammoths that lived in Eurasia on the steppe. This study wanted to see if they could sample DNA from across woolly mammoth origins, basically. Can we figure out how woolly mammoths got started? So they got three molars from fossil mammoths from eastern Siberian permafrost, one of which is an ancient early woolly mammoth that go, that's dated at about 700,000 years old, and the other two are look like steppe mammoth. They've got the right morphology in the teeth, to be steppe mammoth, or at least steppe Mm mammoth-like. Those two are older. One of them is between 1 and 1.2 million years old, and the other is 1.1 to 1.2 million years old. And the researchers were able to sequence genomes from all three. That's very exciting. Right off the bat, at at least 1.1 million year old, Ancient DNA is the oldest sequenced ancient DNA by possibly double the last record. That horse that was roughly somewhere in 600 to 800,000. This is a huge extension of our capability to get ancient DNA. That's very promising. That's so cool. And not even like a bit. So the DNA is fragmentary. DNA breaks down over time. That's why we don't get it from T-Rex and friends. Yep. But these researchers were able to use modern elephant genomes, which have been sequenced, as sort of a scaffolding, as sort of your basis to to put your puzzle together on. outline. 
and then used a specific algorithm to analyze the DNA they sequenced and kick out all the extra stuff and any uncertain genes that we're not sure where they actually would fit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Their techniques were able to recover significant portions of the nuclear genome of all three and the entire mitochondrial genome of all three. Whoa! So not like a little DNA. Yeah. Exceptionally well-sequenced DNA almost twice as old as we've ever had DNA before. Wow. Not only does this confirm we can get good DNA over a million years old, it and it opens up a whole earlier time period for us to sample, but also what they found was really weird and surprising. So the younger molar, uh, like I said, ancient woolly mammoth, that seems to track. The other two, which both look step mammoth-like, steppy, steppy, according to the DNA, are actually two different lineages of mammoths, hmm. which is surprising right off the bat because we did not think there were two different lineages of mammoths at that time in this place. One of the specimens, which is known as the Adicha specimen, the DNA suggests it is an ancestor of woolly mammoths, which is what they were looking for. They wanted... Woolly ma- early woolly mammoths and ancestral woolly mammoths. So, plus. Bingo. G- good job. That ancestor already had a bunch of the genes we see in woolly mammoths that code for their particular type of hair and fat deposits and a lot of their cold-adapted stuff, mm-hmm. which suggests that those are features that were developing for a long time before woolly mammoths proper. Yes. The other specimen, known as Kristavka, is a... Totally separate lineage that just branches off in a totally different direction, unrelated to woolly mammoths. Neat. However, when they compared mammoth DNA, they found that the Kristofka specimen did share some DNA with Colombian mammoths. Mm. Which is interesting because Colombian mammoths also share some DNA with woolly mammoths. Mm. In fact, it's about half and half. Mm. Which suggests... That the Columbi- the species Colombian mammoth is a hybrid species. Yep. Between woolly mammoths and this other lineage from Siberia, the Kristavka lineage, whatever this ends up being. This apparently has been proposed before. People have suggested that you might get mammoth uh, species through hybridization, but this is the first time it's been shown for Colombian mammoths that, yeah, this appears to be a Species born of hybridization. Yeah, we we found the other potential donor. So this study is just full of awesome implications and findings. The the reveals for this research are like the end of a Jerry Springer episode. (laughs) (laughs) And we got DNA from all of them. And one of them is not... A normal step mammoth. And it is the father. Right. You you <laughs> thought that this was your step mammoth, but it turns out that it's your biological yep, mammoth. Yes. Right. <laughs> That's fascinating. How cool. Genetic studies are just, and we say this all the time, but just so sci-fi. Yeah. It's just, just go ahead, apply the, techn- the sci-fi technology to these teeth and tell us... <laughs> What yeah. these mammoths were like. <laughs> Tell us that we're wrong about something. Yeah. I, I like that. I like how basically every ancient DNA study seems to be. Uh, I, I've got the results. I'll read them here. 
it's more complicated than we thought. Yep. Well, and it's it's what you often like to to emphasize that just looking at the morphology of an animal is half the picture. Mm-hmm. Without the genetics, you don't actually understand the animal. And with most fossil animals, that's all we have. And we usually don't even have all of it. Right. So once we do get a glimpse of the DNA, yeah, it unlocks the rest of the house. Right. <laughs> and now we can suddenly go, oh... This is a very different situation than we thought we were in. And it can really change the picture, which can be daunting sometimes when a genetic study comes out and it's like, it's all wrong, but also cool. We're we're a step closer, hopefully, to actually understanding these animals. And in this case, it's that the DNA showed us something surprising, showed us something that we figured was the case, and showed us something else that we thought might be the case, but we didn't have good evidence of yet. Yep. So it, this this covers all of the, the bases of confirming some stuff we suspected and then saying, oh, by the way, here's a thing you didn't even realize. Yep. Very cool. And this opens the door for more DNA studies of this age. Yep. That we are we have extended a few hundred thousand years farther back where we can get DNA. So now we just wait for the next record setter. Yep. Well, it's like uh, Olympic rep- records, where it's like right. this person set this awesome record, and then next year this person beat it. Yeah. <laughs> we just this, this just one took a while. It. Just keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of unexpected discoveries, my next news is about a fossil rediscovery, Ooh. fossil thought lost, rediscovered, and accurately identified to be a vampire squid. Well, you didn't have to one up me. <laughs> This research is by Martin Kostak et al. in Communications Biology, and the article is by Stephanie Pappas in Live Science. So, vampire squid, since we mentioned it, is a squid alive today. It is a deep sea, deep water squid. It's called a vampire squid because it has this cloak, this webbing between the arms that it can wrap itself up in when it's trying to defend itself. And it has all these what look like little barbs, but they're really just barbels on the inside. And it looks super creepy and it's all black colored and whatnot when it's in the dark, but actually very red when it's lit up and everything. Like super creepy. And it's just a filter feeder effectively. It puts out these tendrils that catch little bit of detritus in the water and then it eats those. So it's very boring once you actually watch it (laughs) feed. Not nearly the... The succubus that you would hope. Yeah. Also uh, controls the weather and commands the dead. Yes. <laughs> so it's got that going for it. Uh, it can't cross moving water, which is why it stays so deep it's, down. It's a real struggle. No currents. Uh, <laughs> someone has to push it places. <laughs> One characteristic of it is that it thrives in low oxygen environments. Now, there are very few fossils of this animal and of its lineage. I would imagine. Because deep sea soft bodied bad for fossilization right also immortal that a lot don't they don't die very they don't often. die often yeah and whenever it is there's a stake through the middle of them which really messes up the soft <laughs> yep. body turning to ash doesn't help no. anyway <laughs> this fossil this new fossil analysis on an old fossil this is why one of the reasons this is exciting this fossil was originally discovered in 1942 Ooh. by hungarian paleontologist miklos kretzoy who initially identified it as squid and dated it to about 30 million years old. Later, it was identified as cuttlefish, you know, recategorized, 
And then in 1956, the Hungarian during the Hungarian Revolution, the museum it was housed in burned down. Oh no! And the fossil was assumed lost. Until a couple of years ago, when it was rediscovered among the drawers and realized it was still around. Wow! <laughs> so, so I was joking about the immortal part. Yeah, they thought this thing had been destroyed, and then found out it was still here. So they researched it. <laughs> Amazing. Wow, this is a story with a happy ending. Right? This new analysis dates it to the Oligocene, so 23, 34 million years old. So that 30 million was was good on the money and places it back with squids. So the initial uh, evidence was the initial... Yeah, uh, first guy uh, was right. Identification was right. <laughs> but further IDs it as a vampire squid, a fossil vampire squid. And they found some interesting things through their analysis. They studied it using an electron microscope and conducted geochemical analysis on the sediment. They were able to identify the internal shell, the gladius, which is what gives the squids their conical shape mm-hmm. and support. That torpedo shape. That it's, it's kind of their backbone. It's what gives them their structure. And it's about six inches, 15 centimeters long, which according to their estimates, would make the whole animal, arms included, 13, 14 inches long, so 35 centimeters long. So a foot. A little bit more than a foot, uh, which is not much bigger than today's vampire squid, which is just a little bit less than a foot. About 28 centimeters, not quite a full foot. The sediment analysis around the vampire squid showed no traces of microfossils, Hmm. which you would expect for being ocean floor in most shallow environments. Right. Which is support that this was indeed already living at deep water environments where there would be little life. Right. Little, few microfossils, few things in the deep ocean to fossilize with it. They also analyzed the carbon levels, the variations in carbon in the sediment, and found that it likely came from a low oxygen habitat, once again, supporting deep ocean life. And they went back to where it was found and looked at the levels, the rock layers above where the fossil, the deposit the fossil came from. And were able to find that this squid probably wouldn't have been able to survive in the shallow waters during this time because they were, showed signs of having high levels of a particular, a, a specific kind of plankton that often blooms and is successful in low salt and nutrient-rich ecosystems, which are intolerable for the modern-day vampire squid. Huh. So if they are similar to the modern-day, they wouldn't have been surviving in the shallows. Once again, support that it is it was already deep water by 30 million years ago. And this is all interesting because the earliest fossils known of vampire squid are from the Jurassic, somewhere between 200 and 170 million years old, and are often found in anoxic, low-oxygen sediments, but those are typically low-oxygen habitats that formed in shallow water. Oh, interesting. So it seems that they developed their tolerance for low-oxygen in shallower environments, but then by at least 30 million years ago had moved to deep water where we find them to this day. Oh, that's a cool insight into how you move to the deep sea. Yeah. That you're already adapted to tougher environments mm-hmm. in that way and then you move down there and now you're the the cool squid that lives super deep down in the ocean well and also 
by 30 million years ago, the shallow waters would have been, if not toxic, not particularly habitable for you. Mm -hmm. So now you're trapped in the deep water. Yeah. By the what has become of the shallows. Or they're all trapped down there with you. Yes. <laughs> this is a cool discovery. I, I know we've talked about this. There was, I think there was a patron question at one point about this, that we don't get a lot of fossils from the deep sea. Nope. It's, it's an environment we don't get a lot of access to. So any fossil of a deep sea organism is a rare and interesting find. A cool squid fossil is excellent. As we've discussed before, way back in episode 16, mm -hmm. we don't get a lot of those either. Yeah, doubly rare. Deep sea, soft-bodied cephalopod. But yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. And it's a cool, weird one that we also are still learning about to this day. Like, it's, it's not a super common group today. It's the vampire squid. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Very cool. Well, speaking of things you don't find... My last bit of news is about missing dinosaurs. Okay. Most of them? Well, I to re <laughs> research into why certain size categories of certain dinosaurs don't seem to exist. Okay. Okay. This is research by Catelyn Schroeder, Kathleen Lyons, and Felisa Smith in Science. Uh, Catelyn Schroeder was in our Diversity in Science Anthology episode way back after uh, episode 19. Yeah! And we will link to an article in New Science by Riley Black. Dinosaur communities are weird. Here's why. Uh, when we look at modern-day carnivores, typically you have a range in sizes. Yes. So if you look at Africa, and this is the example that the paper uses... You have everything from small carnivores like mongooses and foxes, medium-sized things like African wild dogs and smaller big cats, mm -hmm. and then big, big stuff like lions. And usually the different size classes are doing different things and fulfilling different roles in their ecosystem. And you can find those parallels in almost every continent you look at. Exactly. Up here in North America, we've got the same thing. We've got wolves and cougars up yep. at the top coyotes and and things and bobcats and stuff towards the middle and then even smaller things like weasels yes and that's what i was gonna say but carnivorous dinosaurs in many cases don't seem to follow this rule mm -hmm. in many places it seems like there aren't middle-sized carnivorous dinosaurs you've got big ones and you've got small ones but nothing in between now if you've listened to our podcast before the solution to this might already come to your mind we've talked before about how juvenile big dinosaurs young ones were are thought to have been living different lives mm -hmm. than their adults we often make the comparison with alligators and crocs yes where they are going from such a small size to such a big size that they have to grow up through the food chain right so the idea here would be maybe the reason we don't have a lot of middle-sized carnivores is because that ecological niche is filled by the young versions of the really big ones. Yep. This <laughs> is the big ones make medium sized. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they keep making them. <laughs> this study set out to start, try to quantitatively test this hypothesis. Can we find evidence that this is the case? Ooh. And they did so uh, by doing two things. First, they wanted to see, okay, is this actually a thing? So they looked at, uh, data for fossil sites, including 43 different fossil communities ranging across the Mesozoic era from all seven continents. 
And what they found was that herbivorous dinosaurs pretty consistently range in size from small to large. Cool. There are more large ones, which is kind of unusual, but dinosaurs are weird anyway. But carnivores in most communities show two peaks, small and large, with few or none in between 100 kilograms and 1,000 kilograms. <laughs> the paper says, to put this in perspective, proportionately, if this same sort of gap existed at Kruger National Park, which is in Africa, this would mean there was no no carnivores in, in the size range between lions and bat-eared foxes, <laughs> which are very, very small. Yes. <laughs> Now, this trend is only seen in the carnivores, so it's probably not a taphonomic thing, right? Mm -hmm. If it was just a preservation issue, we would see it with presumably other groups. other groups. And it's all over the world, so probably not an environmental factor. Yeah, it's not that, like, for some reason, predators this size aren't preserving in the desert. Right, exactly. And we don't have other things to fill that gap. So mammals back then were all very small. And though there were things like crocs that could be that size, those were all semi-aquatic yep. during these times, so they wouldn't be filling this terrestrial carnivore niche. And, seemingly in support of this idea, this trend, there were formations where you don't see this trend, where the gap isn't there, and one of the cases that led to an exception are the formations that don't have megatheropods at a thousand kilograms or more. If you don't have the supergiants, the gap's not there. Then you fill in all the size ranges. The next thing that they did was they evaluated the body mass of juvenile megatheropods. The idea here is, if the juveniles are really the ones filling in this carnivore gap in the, in the size range, well, they would need to have a high enough biomass, there'd need to be enough of them to fill out that ecological space. So they looked at growth rates of large dinosaurs, particularly allosaurs and tyrannosaurs, based on previous published data, and survivorship curves, which is they looked at the age at death oh. of carnivorous dinosaurs in mass death assemblages to say, how fast do they grow, and on average, how long are they living? Mm -hmm. To then calculate how many would there be, and how big would they be at different times throughout their lives, and how common would they be at different growth stages. Yes. And what they found, based on their estimates, is that juvenile biomass, that is the amount of juvenile dinosaur flesh yeah. the, on the... The, the landscape. The, 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 the population mass. Yeah, the volume. Is, in most cases, similar to that of the adults, if not more than that of the adults. Mm -hmm. So your juveniles seem like they are just as ecologically impactful mm -hmm. as the adults. And the sizes of the juveniles tended to peak within the gaps in the carnivore size range, which seems to support... That, yeah, when you have megatheropods around, they're young. The In the 10 to 20 years it takes to become a full-size Tyrannosaurus or Allosaurus, you, there are enough of you 
that there's no space here for medium-sized carnivorous dinosaurs. Yeah, so basically, this is the concept that if in Africa, instead of having the African hunting dogs or hyenas filling in the middle role, young lions were the ones acting as that sized predator until they became big, chunky lions. Right, exactly. Very, very interesting. Like, that's a an example of a habitat, of a, of a food web structure that we don't really see as, it's not the common today. Yeah. And it's, once again, dinosaurs weren't just big, but that was a factor. Like, that fundamentally affected how they function in the ecosystem. I feel like that's that's something that often gets... I feel like it often gets treated that with dinosaurs, you just scale up the food web. Right. You just make everything a little bit bigger. But that's not what's happening. You still have all the tiny stuff. You just also have a lion that's the size of an elephant. Right. So they, they function differently in the food web. Yeah, dinosaur ecosystems fundamentally were different. And what this means is that taxonomically, right, in, in terms of the number of species, there were fewer yeah. species of carnivorous dinosaurs in each place because they were ecologically changing as they grew up. The authors point out that they noticed a trend over time that the gap itself becomes larger after the Jurassic, ah. that this issue basically becomes exacerbated. And they think that this could be that uh, Cretaceous dinosaurs, like Tyrannosaurs, had different growth strategies mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. sort of favored this ontogenetic niche shift. Yeah, that could even become specialized to this or something. There were also more small carnivores, mm -hmm. which may have made it yet harder for things in the middle size range. Now they're competing on both ends. Yep, yep, yep. And the fact that from the Jurassic to the Cretaceous in most communities, the average size of the prey went down. Oh. And one of the exceptions to this uh, trend across the whole thing is that at ecosystems with multiple sauropod species, you didn't see a gap. Oh. Presumably because there's so much prey around that there's plenty to go around and you can have more... You can have medium-sized predators. Right. But when you're limited to just ceratopsians and hadrosaurs, which are big but... Just elephant size. Just, Just elephant size. Elephant sized. <laughs> now it's harder for that food to go around. And they also make the point in the paper that these animals are thought to have traveled in herds that yeah. could have protected their young. Yeah. Which means that babies aren't quite as easily on the menu. Yeah. So if you're a if you're a medium sized predator looking for a medium sized meal, they're now being protected by horns and frills. Yes. Very interesting. And this whole the the, the papers sort of. And message and the part that really interests me is that this means we can't assess dinosaur ecosystems the same way we assess modern day mammal ecosystems. Yeah, we can't just compare it as a one to one. And it means that each species doesn't, you know, if you do an analysis and you're like, okay, well, how many species are there in this ecosystem? And what does that tell us about the ecology? You could very easily look and go, oh, well, there's only half as many carnivores as we'd expect. That must mean it's a depauperate ecosystem, mm -hmm. but not if each species is acting as multiple ecological roles at the same time. Yeah. Which, which is fascinating implications. Absolutely. And, and what it makes me want to do is instead of 
because because that's been a, a potential tripping block for paleontology since the beginning is to look at our ecosystems and go okay how can we overlay that onto fossil ecosystems right which one of these is the elephant which yes, one of these exactly. is, is the hyena is this a savanna or is this a rainforest or is this a okifinoki situation right and the answer we keep coming to is that a lot of times it seems like it's not any of those it's not it doesn't apply our modern experience doesn't apply to the past one uh treating a tyrannosaur like a big wolf or lion is like saying a whale's just a big dolphin right it's a that's they are fundamentally they function in the ocean differently which now makes me want to say is there an example in our modern one that we've just overlooked because it's not the common where this is how it works is there an ecosystem where there's a predator that does kind of nudge out the middle predators. I don't know. I don't know. The paper, as far as I saw, the paper didn't mention one. Like I, the so I don't know. First thought that came to my mind were great white sharks. I thought that, I thought that in crocs. Yep. Because great whites, like they're born, they're on their own pretty much. They're predators from birth and a Baby great white is already a moderately sized, like yeah, that's like a four foot long baby. Yeah, it's already decently sized. It's it's already bigger than a, most of the sharks we had at the aquarium. Yep. Uh, so like, could you have ecosystems like that with sharks or something where young tiger sharks fill the role of medium sized sharks in the area where they nurse or something where they're you know not nurse but the nursery. Right. <laughs> so yeah, now like. Can we find fossil ecosystems in ours that we've overlooked is yeah. what is what my question is, instead of trying to always go the other way. Yeah. Well, someone do research. Someone go find it out. This is so cool. We're not going to do it. Nope. I don't know where to start. Hey, speaking of dinosaurs, what do you say we spend the rest of this episode talking about penguins? Let's continue talking about flightless dinosaurs. The whole time. <laughs> <laughs> After this break... So penguins are weird, huh? Oh, they're so weird. They're birds, but they're like birds doing a real good job trying not to be birds. <laughs> it's, 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 ben Bailey has a whole sketch about the various kinds of birds. And when he talks about penguins that are flightless birds, he says, call me a rodent. Call me what I am. <laughs> <laughs> penguins are flightless. Mm -hmm. They are aquatic. Yep. Like aquatic birds. Yep. They live in oceans. They hunt in the water and they return to land for molting mm -hmm. and breeding. And baby making. And making and raising babies, laying eggs, stuff like that. They are truly exceptionally adapted to spending their lives in the water. Yeah, they are extremely more efficient in water than on land. Yeah. They have switched their, their efficiency almost 100% that way. They are not the only... Diving birds, mm -mm. they're not the only ones that hunt in water, but they are arguably the best at it, and certainly the most famous yeah. of the diving, of, of weird birds and of diving birds. Yes. Penguins, uh, their wings are flippers, their feathers are different. Yeah, it's like fur. They stand upright on land instead of the, the 
typical dinosaur theropod sort of hunched forward yeah, with like most birds. Legs vertical, body horizontal. Yeah, they stand more like we do, which yep. we can all agree is a weird thing it's to a do. Bad choice. They're famous, a lot of them, for breeding in large colonies. Uh, which, again, not unique among birds. No, that is a very bird-like thing for them. But it does mean that even these weird waddly birds will congregate in groups of hundreds to hundreds of thousands. So they're very famous, very unusual. We're going to go into what makes them so weird and what sort of strange features they have. But before we do that, I want to highlight penguin diversity. Living penguin diversity. Because I think it's easy to not realize how diverse penguins are today. And I think it's easy because I didn't realize how diverse penguins are today. Yeah, I think they often get colored as a very select few in a very isolated expanse. You know, a very isolated habitat. Typically, when you think of penguins, you think of Antarctica and Mm -hmm. penguins sort of waddling around protecting their chicks waiting for the mothers to return and just trying not to freeze to death just black and white birds on a white landscape yes but that's not what all or even most penguins no, that's actually the minority <laughs> there are in the world today around 20 species of penguins that number has fluctuated a bit but around 20 species mm-hmm. they are famous from antarctica but they are found all over the southern hemisphere There are penguins in Australia, New Zealand, Africa, South America, plus lots of oceanic islands. Yep. They exist on ice shelves, but also inhabit coastal forests and rocky barren islands and equatorial islands. Mm -hmm. There's lots of different penguins. So let's do a quick run through. There are six living genera of penguins. And each group has its own sort of interesting features to it. Aptenodides is the genus of the great penguins. (laughs) Which, which, as the name suggests, are pretty good. Which include the king penguins and the emperor penguins. The modest penguins. These are the famous ones. (laughs) Emperor penguins are the ones you think of from the documentaries most of the time. These are the ones that tap dance. They're the ones that tap dance. They're the ones (laughs) out in Antarctica, uh... Famous, uh, famously the largest of living penguins. Emperor penguins can grow up to a meter tall mm-hmm. or even more, right? Three, three and a half feet. And they can weigh 35 kilograms or about 80 pounds, which makes them um, some of the largest birds in yeah, the world. like most massive birds. They're not as tall as the other big birds <laughs> because they're all squatty standing upright. Yes. But yeah, that's almost half my weight. Yeah, like that's a two emperor penguins and then a couple of their chicks would weigh as much as one will. <laughs> that's a that's a bird. They're also the deepest divers. Having big bodies helps them to dive deep. Emperor penguins can dive down around 500 meters. Wow. 1600 feet. I, yeah. I don't I don't think I had ever heard that. That's awesome. That's a deep dive. Whew. On the other side of the spectrum, we have the genus Eudiptula, which are the little penguins. Yeah. These live in Australia, Tasmania, and New Zealand. These include the smallest penguin species at about one foot tall, Mm -hmm. 30 centimeters and weighing about a kilogram. Little tiny babies. 
Isn't that's the something something blue? The little blue penguins. The little blue penguins. Uh, yep. There are apparently two. This is one that I think has gone back and forth. That might be that there's the little blue penguin and the fairy penguin. Yes, which I think right. are now considered separate, but very tiny little tiny penguins. Yeah, adorable. The genus Sphiniscus are the banded penguins, which include lots of species all over the southern hemisphere. These are famously very noisy and named for the black bands that go across their bodies. All penguins are black on the back and white on the belly. Mm-hmm. That's just a thing that all penguins have. It's countershading. Yep, that's yep. For when they're swimming, the the belly, if you're looking up at them, blends in with the sunlight from above, and the back is dark and to blend in with the depths below. But the banded penguins have these black bands across their bodies. This group includes the African penguin, which is the only species that breeds on the African continent. Yep, South African Africa. black-footed penguins are yep. the ones we had. Oh, cool. Yeah, so they have to be automatically my favorites. And this group also includes the Galapagos penguins, which live in the Galapagos, which makes them the most northern-dwelling species of penguins. This is the only species that actually gets up above the equator. Yeah. So this is a southern hemisphere group. This one species gets up to the equator and a little bit into the north. Technically. Technically up into the north, beyond the wall. Pygoscelis is the genus of brush-tailed penguins, which includes some famous ones like the Adelie penguins, also of Antarctica, chinstrap, which are the ones with the chinstrap yep. little, little line, and the gentoo penguins, which I have seen cited as the fastest swimming birds. Oh. They can swim up to 35 kilometers per hour, which is about 20 miles per hour, which is a lot faster than I can swim. But yeah, which ain't nothing. Megadiptes includes the yellow-eyed penguin of New Zealand, as well as the recently extinct Waitaha penguin. And Eudiptes are the crested penguins, which have lots of diversity also around New Zealand, but then other southern areas as well. These are the ones with the yellow crests and the red bills. The macaroni penguins. The macaroni penguin. There's a whole bunch of these yeah. that rock are hoppers. very uh, visually distinctive. Yeah. And these, yeah, rock hoppers, I think. These were some of my favorites as kids, as a kid. I learned, I think I read this on Wikipedia, and I didn't look very much deeper into it. Uh, what I learned is that all penguins lay two eggs at a time, except the big ones, which lay one. Crested penguins lay two eggs at a time. One of them is significantly smaller than the other, and only one young survives most of the time. Yep, 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 yep. I've, I've, I remember hearing that they basically have a sacrificial young. Yeah, weird. Brutal. So... Lots of penguins. They live in all sorts of habitats. They come in all, not all different shapes, but certainly all different sizes. Well, and them living in all different habitats was always one of the things that would blow people's minds when the black-footed penguins would come out and they'd hear they were from Africa. And the way the handlers always explained it is that we were in Tampa, Florida, you know, at the aquarium, that the penguins were fine with the above water temperature in Tampa, Florida. Mm -hmm. The water was just too warm. South African waters are much colder, but they, they are fine with Florida temperatures, but g- better with cold waters. Oh, interesting. So you could have, these are penguins that would have been fine on the beach in Florida, comfortable Yeah. with that temperature. They just need the water to be frigid. Yeah, which implies that penguins could theoretically live basically anywhere on the planet mm-hmm. temperature wise, because they range all the latitudes. Yeah. In the south. Now, all penguins do share a number of 
features that are not only adaptations for their particular lifestyle, but make them very strange birds. <laughs> so they're birds. Penguins are birds. Yes. They've got the the pneumatized bones. They've got all the weird fusion of different elements in the different parts of the body. The, the, the hip bones, the arm bones. They've got a bird-like face with a beak and no teeth. These are birds. They've got all the bird features. Yeah. But they have modified it to be weird. So notable weirdnesses include, for example, their feathers. Uh, have you gotten a pet a penguin? Yes. It's, I, I got to pet a penguin once at, I think this was at the aquarium up at the Long Island Aquarium, I think it was, where, and, and they feel like a short-haired dog. Yeah, it feels like fur. Feels like fur. The feathers are flat and scale-like, densely packed, and very samey all over the body. Yeah, uniform. Which is different from most birds, where there are many different types of feathers for different purposes. Yeah, where you have feathers on your face that are different than the ones on your back and you have long tail feathers yep and you know, the wings have multiple mm-hmm. different types of feathers penguin feathers aren't for flight and such they're there to be insulating they're there to help them be hydrodynamic yep to be waterproof this and this gives them the right torpedo shape with no feathers sticking out like a lot of aquatic uh, vertebrates penguins have dense bones yeah so this is something we see i mean Hippos have this, uh, a lot of ocean-dwelling mammals yeah, have cetaceans. this. Yep, where the bones, uh, it's it's a, there's, there's two different terms that often come up. Osteosclerosis is that the bone is denser. Mm-hmm. You have denser bones, the, a lot of the middle might be filled in. It's one of the easiest ways to ID a manatee rib, yep. which was a very common fossil in Florida. Is there no marrow visible? Manatee. Yeah, because it's all filled in. This is osteosclerosis is bad in us, but on purpose in penguins. Yes. (laughs) And then pachyostosis is another version of this, which I think tends to refer to thicker walls. Yeah. uh, That they're they're more heavily built. Denser on the outside of the bone. I think there is a difference between osteosclerotic and pachyostotic. I don't know uh, the specifics, although I did read in a paper that the difference was first distinguished by Franz Napcha. Hey! From episode 106. Callback. How about that? Penguins also have, their eyes are modified for seeing underwater. They have the the nose gland that filters salt. Yeah. So they can drink salt water. And they're adapted for the cold. Like you were just saying, they don't do well in warm waters, but they do extremely well in cold water. And like in the, with the black-footed penguins, they have a whole bunch of bald spots to sweat Due to the hot water weather above the water. They oh, have bald eyebrows and there's another spot. I think it's around their cheek so that they can temperature control when they're out of the water. Very cool. Yeah. Well, they have a bunch of temperature control stuff for in the water too. E. Across their range, penguins forage in water that can be as warm as 28 degrees Celsius or as cold as freezing. Yep. Actually free. And in fact, a little bit below zero. Yes. Because of the way that salt water works. Yep. But they maintain a core temperature, according to my source, of 38.5 degrees Celsius. Like us, they stay warm. Uh, you know, they're birds. They're, they're homeothermic. They yep. stay warm. They do this partially, like I said, they, their feathers act as insulation. Um, I've, I've seen references to them possibly having subdermal fat layers I have heard under them. the skin. Penguins tend to have big round bodies, Yee. which gives them a good volume to surface area ratio 
lots of interior volume for holding on to heat, not as much surface area for releasing heat out into the world. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, big animals, big rotund animals tend to re- retain heat better than small spindly ones. And they also have blood vessels in their wings that function to produce a countercurrent exchange. So this is, we see this in fish gills. Uh, uh, this is this shows up in a lot of animals, especially ocean dwelling animals. And we've also borrowed this for engineering yeah. in a lot of cases. In penguins, the way it specifically works is that in the flippers, the arteries and the veins stay really close to each other. There's a whole network of them so that every vein has arteries near it. Because arteries carry blood away from the heart to go deposit oxygen elsewhere, and veins carry blood back towards the heart to get oxygenated again. So the blood is warm in the arteries, but cold on its way back, because the core is warm. Yeah. So to prevent cold blood from coming back into the center and cooling down the center of the body, the arteries and veins are positioned very closely together so that the cold blood in the veins will pick up heat, will be warmed on their way back in. So it comes back at more of a moderate temperature. Yeah, which helps keep the core warm and the flippers get super cold. (laughs) But of course, the adaptation, the thing about penguins that they are most famous for is the way that they move. On land, penguins have an upright posture and they tend to waddle around Or slide on their bellies. Yeah. (laughs) But in water, they are exceptionally good swimmers and divers. They are wing-propelled swimmers. So they use their wings to produce thrust. This is as opposed to things like ducks and cormorants, Mm -hmm, which use mm -hmm. their feet to produce a lot of uh, propulsion. Penguins use their feet for steering, mostly. Their wings are what is pushing them through the water. We also see this in petrels and in auks. Yep, yep. A certain other diving birds will do this. Penguin wings are heavily modified. For one thing, they are flippers. They basically have produced a flipper out of a wing. It, like, a penguin wing looks much more like the front arm of a sea turtle than it does other birds. Yes, and they use them differently. Mm-hmm. Penguin wings tend to have stiffer joints. They're not quite as mobile. So birds, when they're flying, usually are adjusting and twisting and moving the wing around in a number of different ways. Penguin wings, it the, the joints are stiff, the bones are big and thick, so that they function as a stiff paddle, like an oar. Yeah, like it, it looks almost more like a hand attached at the shoulder mm-hmm. than an, a full arm with a bunch of joints in it. Right. The, the arm bones tend to be flatter. Uh, and you see this, you can put a penguin wing side by side with another bird wing, and the humerus and the radius and ulna are f- compressed. Mm-hmm. They're flattened out, par- partially because that helps resist stresses from twisting around. And they are the only birds that don't have an alula. So an alula is a portion of the wing supported by effectively the thumb Mm -hmm. and it's a little extra section of wing that birds can adjust separately from the rest of the wing to change the wing's shape to help control especially uh, during landing and takeoff oh this is this helps is another little way that they can adjust the shape of their wing penguins don't have that interesting uniquely among birds 
And with their wings being so different, they use them differently. In birds, notably, when a bird is flying, they're producing thrust on the downstroke. Yes. A bird, when they push their wing down, they are pushing themselves through the air. The upstroke is just repositioning. Resetting for the next downstroke. And then the next downstroke. Penguins produce thrust on both the down and upstroke. Which makes them more like hummingbirds than your normal bird. Yes! So they are not the only diving birds that do this. There are other diving birds that produce thrust up and down. And yeah, also apparently hummingbirds do it. Yep. Because of course they do. Yep. Because they are birds doing their very best impression of insects. (laughs) Penguin wings have different musculature than other birds. They tend to have very long coracoids and very big scapulae. So these are bones of the shoulder and the pel- the, the pectoral region mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for supporting big, strong, quote, flight muscles. Yes. The big paddle-shaped scapula is real handy for that powerful upstroke, pulling the wing back. Yeah, you need muscles on top and bottom if you're going to be creating thrust up and down. Yeah. So they're... they're functioning they're flying underwater kind of but in a very different way because what works in the air isn't the same as what works underwater oh yeah gravity has effectively flipped on you (laughs) and water is way denser yes i think one of the papers i read said water is 800 times denser than air so it's very different physically to move through it yeah this is why things that fly are so much faster than everything else Because air's much thinner than everything else. One other note about penguin anatomy that I want to make. Like most birds, they have, like all modern birds, they have a pygostyle, which is their little fused tailbone. Birds don't have long tails, not long bony tails. They have a little fused tailbone. A little nugget that they can then move around those tail feathers with. Right, and they have a fan of tail feathers, which are useful in flight. Uh, adjusting again adjusting your shape while flying it's like it's like think of it like holding a fan by the tip Mm -hmm. it's the fan is the feathers and then that tip is the one little bit of tail penguin pyga styles are a bit longer they're not quite as flat and they don't have a fan of flight feathers because obviously they're not using them to fly Mm -hmm. instead their tail feathers are more long and bristly Mm -hmm. like a broom and their pyga style it helps support themselves while walking. <laughs> it's like a little tripod yeah. that helps them uh, support while standing up. Which makes them more like kangaroos while walking than other birds. Right? <laughs> These are just little, little bird kangaroos. Just little, little swimming bird kangaroos. Aquatic bird, aquatic hummingbird kangaroos. <laughs> now, uh, I want to make the note that while penguins are hyper-adapted for a diving lifestyle. They're not the only ones. There are other diving birds. Uh, I mentioned petrels, uh, shearwaters, pelicans. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, Many pelicans will plunge dive. Cormorants will do this too. These are all birds that are uh, specialized for diving to get food in the water. Puffins, which share habitats. And those are auks. Puffins, uh, puffins, Guillemots, mures, these are all part of the auk family. Cool. Which gets special mention here because auks, uh, many of them are extremely similar to penguins. Mm-hmm. They tend to have an upright posture. They tend to be black and white. They tend to both swim and fly. They congregate on land in breeding colonies. Auks are not closely related to penguins, but a very similar group that lives uh, predominantly in the northern hemisphere. <laughs> nice. Of note is the great auk, which was a 
flightless auk, most of these other diving birds still fly. Yes. They dive and they fly. Yeah, they're they're diving not from the surface of the water, but into the water from the sky. Right. Yeah, they don't jump off of the land yep. into the water. They dive. Dive down bomb. Great auks were flightless. They were bigger than auks today. If I remember right, they were like five kilograms, so ten pounds. Yeah, they were they were not small. Uh, these were hunted to extinction in the mid-1800s. They are one of the classic examples of really cool animals that we did away with. I think this is one of the first animals I ever learned about that was a human-caused extinction. Yeah, this one usually comes up in the same conversations as, like, the passenger pigeon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was one of the first times I realized that something other than natural disasters could cause animals to go extinct, and it was us, and I yeah. was very sad. And this Very was sad little Will. Hunting. Yeah. Straight up. We just shot them to death. Killed all of them. I think there is a known story of the last great auk. Yes. If I remember right. I do. I remember hearing about that where it was sighted. We may have have even talked about Mm -hmm. it in one of our episodes. The other reason that I want to take mention of the great auk is that the word penguin apparently originally meant the great auk. (laughs) Like the original (laughs) use of the word penguin was for the great auk. And then later explorers saw penguins and called them penguins. And we're like, oh yeah, look, look, penguins. Penguins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that that's the name that stuck. That's amazing. How about that? That's fantastic. So penguins are very unique, lots of cool adaptations. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this raises intriguing questions about how they got that way. What was the path that took penguins from presumably flying ancestors, like all birds Mm -hmm. today, to the weirdos that we have today. To these weird torpedo animals. And this is where we turn to the fossil record, where I get to say the surprising fact that there is a really good fossil record of penguins. There are, I've seen different numbers cited, but around 50 fossil species of penguins have been identified, which means we know more fossil species than living species. Yep. And I read a 2011 uh, paper by Dan Sepka et al. This was a great paper. I don't have the name in front of me, but it was something like Fossil Record of the Penguins, which is which was great for <laughs> learning in this episode. Convenient. Uh, but it's 10 years old. And in that study, it cited that there are over 4,000 fossil penguin specimens in museums around the world. Wow. This is kind of unusual because most birds don't have a good fossil record. Birds tend not to fossilize particularly well. But a lot of the things that penguins do that are weird make them good at becoming fossils. Yep. They have dense, sturdy bones, right? That reduced, uh, the, the, the parts of the bone that are already filled in mean that their bones are better at surviving to fossilization. A bit more robust to the ravages of age. Yup. Penguins tend to be big. Mm-hmm. They range from one kilogram to over 30 kilograms, yep. which is big for birds. There are no songbird-sized penguins. And they live in nearshore habitats, which are great habitats to become fossilized yes. in. Yes, die on the beach. So penguins actually, everything's going in the right direction for them to be good fossil candidates. We've mentioned in the past that depending on what group you're studying will depend will will affect what bones of the body you want to use. Yes, what you which ones you're most excited when you get to find. And it turns out that the like key especially useful bone in penguins is the tarsometatarsus. 
which is a leg bone that is formed of the fusion, because it's still a bird, of the tarsals, the ankle bones, with the metatarsals, which are the foot bones. Yeah. Not the toes, but the bones in the foot. Yeah, so we're talking about from the bottom of your lower leg to just before the toes. Right, toes to ankles. Yeah. That's that's your, your metatarsals. So the tarsometatarsus is a fusion of all that, which is apparently the go-to penguin bone for fossils. Many species have been named off of just that bone. I mean, I guess that's not too bizarre because one of the weird things they do is walk upright. Yeah. So that has to be, there has to be a lot of weird specializations and adaptations going on in that region of the body for them to do that. They have weird feet. I just would have never guessed that. Yeah. Yeah. Neat. The first named fossil penguin was identified in 1859 by Thomas Henry Huxley, a very famous name in evolutionary biological history. This specimen came from New Zealand and was named Peleudiptes antarcticus. Since then, there have been plenty more found, especially in the last few decades. We are we are living in a golden age of penguin fossil discoveries. Ping, the heyday of penguins. Heyday of, well, the heyday of penguins who have had their day. The heyday of penguin discovery. Right. <laughs> <laughs> These fossils range across basically the entire Cenozoic era, going back to the Paleocene right up to recent. They're found all over the Southern Hemisphere, like they are today. There are famously diverse fossil deposits in parts of Antarctica, so Seymour Island, Antarctica, the south coast of Australia, the South Island of New Zealand, and Peru and Patagonia in South America. All renowned for great places for penguin fossils. And then there are others in uh, other parts of these continents. There are some in Africa. There are island uh, deposits as well. But of course, before they had all this diversity, they came from somewhere. There is a long history of not knowing where penguins fit among Mm -hmm. birds. In fact, penguins are so strange that according to that 2011 paper, a lot of uh, a number of early a number of early scientists in the late 1800s to early 1900s suggested that penguins might be outside crown birds. Yeah, that they, they were a separate lineage of birds from dinosaurs. Yep. That. Well, a separate lineage of birds, particularly related to some uh, things like perhaps Hesperornis. Ah, so the diving gotcha. birds okay. back in the Cretaceous. So like a, a remaining member of an extinct lineage. Right. Still birds, but not part of the same modern bird group. Oh. Right. All birds today are one group, cousins to the extinct things like Hesperornis and, and Antiornis and things like that. Some early on had suggested penguins might be descended from one of those other groups. I mean, I can't blame them. At least one author in 1887 suggested that penguins might be descended from a wholly different group of reptiles. (laughs) Not even birds, just a whole other group of reptiles. Just a very bird-like group. I guess. (laughs) Uh, I did not go diving deeper into that to find what group of reptiles, um, but my headcanon is plesiosaurs. Yeah. Yep, these these are just condensed <laughs> tiny plesiosaurs. <laughs> what we have are bipedal mosasaurs. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> best birds. But uh, we do know now that they are crown birds. They mm-hmm. belong to the same major group of birds that all other living birds do. Both DNA and an anatomical studies 
suggest that they are closely related to the Procellaria forms, which is the group that includes albatrosses, petrels, and shearwaters. So, diving birds, yep, oceanic birds, that isn't too much of a surprise. Modern penguins, so the modern family of penguins, Sphiniscidae, penguins largely are Sphiniscaforms. Modern penguins, uh, fossils go back to the Miocene, and there are some DNA studies that agree that the origin of modern penguins is around the Miocene, so 10 to 20 million years ago. All right. There have been some that suggest even earlier than that, but we don't have fossils earlier than that. Yes. Even though we have a good record of penguins. So it may be that they are a more recent uh, evolution. But the broad group of penguins, the Sphiniscaforms, modern penguins and their ancient relatives, DNA and fossils suggest that they go all the way back to the Cretaceous period. Wow. That before the end of the Cretaceous, this group of birds branched off from the rest. The oldest known penguins are Paleocene, around 60 million years old, from New Zealand, but they are already penguins. Oh. They are already diving, specially adapted. They have a lot of the same features we see in penguins today. I smell bat problems coming up. So we do do have a good idea of how penguins have shifted over time, but the oldest penguins we have are already highly adapted to doing the penguin thing. So we do. That's good evidence that they had already evolved earlier than that, mm-hmm. right? Cretaceous origin. But it does mean that we don't have a good picture of the full transition yes. from the pre-penguin to the true penguin. Yes, we don't quite know how we went from not a penguin to a penguin. But we do have an exceptional fossil record that tells us lots of really interesting things about what penguins have done in their time so far on this planet. Yes, since being penguins. Since being penguins. So after the break, for the rest of the episode, we're going to talk about penguin evolution and fossil record throughout the Cenozoic with some fun surprises to come. One of the most famous fossil localities for penguins, possibly the most famous fossil locality for penguins, is the Waipara Green Sand on the South Island of New Zealand. This fossil deposit dates to the Paleocene around 60 million years ago, very shortly after the end of the Cretaceous period into the Cenozoic era, and it is famous for preserving the oldest known fossil penguins. This is where it already gets a little bit strange, because (laughs) normally when we talk about the oldest known blah 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 blah, we're talking about this one weird rare thing from this time period. Yeah, something that we've identified as most likely technically this group. Right. And then that's about as much as we can say. This deposit includes several species of ancient penguins. Nice. The most famous, the first one and probably the more famous name is Waimanu. There have since been more discoveries and re-identifications. So I think some of the things that were Waimanu have been renamed. Gotcha. So that now the fauna also includes Murray Waimanu, Sekwa Waimanu, Kumimanu, Crossvalia, and there might even be more that I'm not familiar with. There's a bunch. This is the oldest fossil penguins in a fauna of fossil penguins. Yeah, yeah. A, A habitat, it seems, full of penguins. These are, like I said... 
They're penguins. They are already very penguin-like, although some of their features are intermediate. They're not quite as advanced, uh, advanced, right, as, as developed as in penguins today. They have flipper wings, but of the ones that have been studied, they are longer than the wings of living penguins, which are pretty short compared to a lot of birds. Yeah. Uh, in some cases, these old penguins will have a flat upper arm bone, but the lower arm still looks relatively normal, sort of roundish, which is a thing we see in auks, for example, modern-day auks. The shoulder blade is still more normal-shaped, not quite that big paddle like modern penguins, so they were probably swimming in a different way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than modern penguins, even though they're clearly de- built for swimming Probably not doing it quite the same way. Yeah, they're still retaining a lot of the more traditional bird shapes. A 2020 paper by Gerald Mayer et al. described the first complete fossil wing of one of these penguins, uh, possibly Murray Waimanu. It's a very small specimen. And that found that they have an Alula. Ah. They still have that little movable part uh, uh, on the thumb, which would have allowed more mobility in the shape of the wing along with it looked like more mobility in the arm overall yeah so this wasn't quite the stiff paddle that we have in penguins today so they could have been doing something if not the same as flapping in other birds a bit more flapping like in their swimming because they have more of that mobility still right whether it looked the same or not or whether that's exactly that they had more motion to work with right and again this is something we see today in auks yes diving birds and these are you know these ancient penguins that they've got the thick bone walls they've got the proportions of the arms for swimming these are divers but they may have had more in common with things like auks than with modern penguins which makes sense like that's you gotta start somewhere you, you gotta start somewhere and auks though many of them are diving birds most of them were still flying mm-hmm. and therefore still have wings. Right. They're retaining more of those traditional so, bird like yeah. features. We're not, we don't quite have the transition from flighted to penguin, but we do have the tail end of that right. transition. These aren't quite as penguin as our penguins today are. Exactly. Even in the feet. So some of these uh, the preserved feet show that they have a limb structure, probably good for upright walking mm-hmm. like modern penguins. But some of the proportions of the feet are similar to birds like petrels, which use their feet for propulsion in the water. So these might have been using their feet to help move them through the water, which makes sense if their arms weren't quite as good at it as modern penguins. And with today's penguins, their feet basically just fold back. Right. They'll use them to like help with steering mm-hmm. and stuff, but they're not kicking with exactly. their feet. Yeah, they're not, per- they're not uh, uh, propelling themselves. Right. Uh, some modern birds like petrels, uh, cormorants, I think, will will both use the wings and the feet together yep. to push themselves along. Which also makes sense if you're less... It, it's like us. Right. Where we have to use our whole body to swim. Because <laughs> we're bad at it. Because we're not good at it. If you just kick, you don't go very fast. If you just use your arms, unless you're really good at the butterfly stroke, you don't go very fast. And the butterfly stroke's really hard. <laughs> So yeah, you're having to use more of your body to achieve motion underwater instead of the super efficient penguin style. These oldest penguins tend to also have long, narrow beaks, 
which is penguins today tend to have shorter and stubbier beaks mm-hmm. comparatively. Penguins today have a range of foods that fish or squids, some eat plankton, crustacean type things, krill, stuff yep. like that. These skulls make it seem like they were probably eating larger foods, so fish, gotcha. more so than planktonic, you know, krill type things. And another thing that's notable about these ancient penguins is that they tend to be rather big. Mm-hmm. Already in the Paleocene, we have penguins up to emperor penguin sized and larger. More on that later. <laughs> I had a, I had a thought, and I don't know how valid this is, but with these being shortly after the the end of the Mesozoic, the end of the age of the dinosaurs, and since we have yet to discover what seems to be marine dinosaurs, would these be some of our first m- mostly marine, like really, really adapted to marine lifestyle dinosaurs? Yeah, so uh, Hesperornis yeah. in the Cretaceous was... Like, had no arms. Right, it was basically flat. Highly so, okay. aquatic. So, But, absolutely, these are some of the only dinosaurs that truly went aquatic. Yes. Later in penguin evolution, we would see more of the shortening of the wing, flattening of the bones, more f- muscles for, for flapping. But before this, as you pointed out, we don't know because we don't have fossils, mm-hmm. but... Generally, what I've seen, most studies I, I looked at, suggest that the ancestors of penguins were probably a lot like auks. Yeah. They were probably diving seabirds. They're related to diving seabirds like petrels and shearwaters. There are lots of birds today that dive and fly. And in fact, there was a paper I found, a 2013 paper by Kyle Elliott et al., that analyzed what it's like to be a bird that flies and dives. Hmm. They looked at the shape of birds and uh, the physiology of birds to calculate how costly is it to fly and dive at the same time. To do to be able to do both. And they found that birds like guillemots, which are a, a part of auks, and cormorants have among the highest cost of flight of all birds Mm. because your body and particularly your wings are adapted for being good in the water that makes it harder to be good in the air it's like the the boat cars you know the that either aquatic vehicles or boats with wheels depending on which way you look at it where they're not as good on either they're not as good as a car and they're not as good as a boat but they can do both so there's a bit of a trade-off with if you're trying to retain both, it becomes really hard. For some of them, swimming is hard. And for a lot of them, flying is hard. They can do it, but it's costly. Mm-hmm. Another potential limiting factor they found was size. When they looked at, uh, they note that ox, today, ox all fly. The largest of them are about a kilogram, which is also the size of the smallest living penguins. Yep. That there is a size constraint that if your body is built for diving, you can only get so big before you're not going to make it into the air with that body shape anymore. So this transition for penguins may very well have been diving birds that eventually just gave up flight to pursue the perfection of the diving aspects of their behavior. That it it's hard to fly and it limits you. Yeah. 
you know, one of the things that's being big is great for diving. I mentioned that the bigger the penguin, typically the deeper they can dive. But if you're getting bigger, you can't fly. Yes. Well, it's the same way that our biggest birds got big. I'm going to stop flying and get real long legs. And I'm just going to, I'm just a walking bird now. Just a big terrestrial bird. And indeed, the first penguins we have are already big, which Mm -hmm. suggests that they probably evolved from flying and diving ancestors. And then as soon as they lost flight, they were able to explore larger body sizes. A lot of researchers point out that the timing of the origin of penguins is also possibly not coincidental in that penguins seem to show up around the end of the Cretaceous, Mm. which is a time period where there's a lot of available ecology to explore. The Cretaceous ends with a mass extinction, uh, episode five, which includes not only the extinction of most dinosaurs, but also mosasaurs, Mm -hmm. episode 51 and plesiosaurs episode 72 so the oceans are open yeah so penguins may have evolved to exploit that aquatic predator niche that is now missing a lot of their potential competitors and predators yes that i mean that makes sense so this is probably a story of birds already good at diving who then when the opportunity arose took over parts of the ocean hunting niche yeah that <laughs> ecological habit it was they were they were already good at diving and then opportunity knocked and they stopped doing anything else yes well they went in and they went are all the mosasaurs gone yeah <laughs> have you noticed over. that i have, have you, when was the last time you saw a mosasaur <laughs> all right i'm staying in then i'm staying in the water Penguins are generally thought to have originated in the southern continents. That makes sense. The oldest ones are down in New Zealand. And then they would have spread around to their modern distribution and their later fossil distribution. Either as Gondwana continued to break up, they could have been carried along continental shorelines. Or at the same time, there were new ocean currents opening up as the continents split. That could have carried the penguins. there, There are stories... Uh, I read uh, one of the papers mentioned there are stories today of vagrant penguins yes. who have shown up well outside of their range. Yeah, when those currents open up, they're like little penguin highways that they could be using to get around. Like the EAC. <laughs> the traditional idea was that penguins started out way down south and that spreading to their modern range was a very recent thing that they wouldn't have gotten farther north until as late as maybe the Pliocene. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. However, that idea was flat wrong. (laughs) Soundly trounced. We learned in 2007 in a paper by Julia Clark et al., which identified one of the other super famous fossil penguin localities from the Eocene of Peru. So this is South America, well north in South America. Mm -hmm. Peru is not what you would consider particularly far south. <laughs> it's a ju- just barely southern hemisphere. <laughs> uh, it's south of us. <laughs> yes. But, uh, these are penguins at about 35 million years old. So still early in penguin evolution. That paper identified Perudiptes and Icadiptes. Icadiptes stands out for, uh, number one, having a spear-like beak like a heron. Cool. And for being up to one and a half meters tall. 
So five feet tall. Yeah. One of the largest fossil penguins, not the largest fossil penguin. More on that soon. <laughs> Which I assume just waddled around and impaled <laughs> seals. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> this was early evidence that penguins actually spread around real early. We've got penguins in Peru at the same time period that we see them in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Penguins not only got big early and uh, took on their diving habits early, but became widespread very early. It was good to be a penguin. A few years later in 2010, another Clark et al. paper published another fossil penguin from Peru, Inkayaku. Inkayaku, if you've heard of fossil penguins, there's a good chance you've heard of Inkayaku. This is a very famous fossil penguin from Paracas National Park in Peru, similar to Icodiptes, long spear-like beak, five feet tall, (laughs) but it stands out for being the first known fossil penguin to have well-preserved feathers. Mm, Right, right, right. I remember this. In the fossil. And this was exciting for a couple reasons. One, that the feathers are very similar to modern penguins, which suggests that among their adaptations, the feather style also had shown up by the Eocene, right, Mm -hmm. over 30 million years ago. But also, they had melanosomes. Yeah pigment-containing cells in those feathers, which allowed the team to interpret their color. And it was particularly different from modern penguins. Modern penguins are very black in color, Mm -hmm. like very dark in color oftentimes, and their feathers have giant melanosomes. So a melanosome is a pigment-containing cell that they usually will contain melanin, some form of melanin, which is the pigment, That produces color in the feather. We have that in our hair and skin. Penguins have a type called eumelanosomes that are 50% wider than other birds. They've just got these big pigment cells. Big honking melanosomes. But in Kayaku's feathers, the pigment cells were normal bird-sized and seem to indicate that it was reddish brown or gray in color as opposed to black like modern penguins. What weirdos. Notably, reddish, brown, or gray are the colors of baby penguins today. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's something there. (laughs) That paper also uh, suggests that modern penguins, that excessive, that that, that super pigmentation, might be because melanin might help reinforce the strength of the feathers. It might make them sturdier. It might be structural. Yeah, Yeah, and melanin... Absolutely, I've seen elsewhere it referred to as being a structural molecule as well as pigment. That's something I did not know. So it reinforces the feather, potentially. Huh. Which might be one of the reasons why penguins are so dark. Nifty. They are they're just armored with mel- melanosomes. Yeah. So an exceptional diversity of penguins and of penguin fossils already by the Eocene but at this point, I have mentioned giant penguins three times, and I suspect the listeners are becoming impatient. So let's talk about giant penguins. Yeah. Because this was a thing. Giant penguins. So uh, typically when we talk about giant penguins in the fossil record, what we mean by giant is bigger than an emperor penguin. Mm-hmm. Which like is I, already big. Which is already big. Like I said uh, earlier, emperor penguins today are up to a meter or more. Uh, three to three and a half feet tall. They can weigh 35 kilograms, 80 pounds. In the fossil record, there are numerous 
fossil penguins that have estimated to have stood around one and a half meters tall, five feet. Some are thought possibly to have gotten as tall as two meters, six feet, with estimated weights ranging from 80 to 100 kilograms, or roughly 170 to 220 pounds. These were penguins the size of us. Yeah, that's just adult-sized penguins. That's just... And, and, and some some of these estimates are potentially even a little bit bigger than us. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> these are big penguins. And where typically you might expect me to now discuss, well, here are what those penguins were, and here's where they lived, and here's what was unique about this, these rare few giant penguins... They weren't rare. Mm-hmm. They were all over the place. In the Paleocene deposit of New Zealand, the Waipara greensand, the oldest known penguins includes at least one and possibly two giant one and a half meter tall or more penguins. Kumimanu and possibly Crossvalia are both that size. Peru, I mentioned in the Eocene, Icadiptes and Incayaku. In Eocene Antarctica, there's Anthropornis and Pachydiptes. The Oligocene of New Zealand and Antarctica includes Kairuku and Paleudiptes, and there are at least fragmentary remains of possibly giant penguins from the Eocene to Oligocene of Australia, and possibly even the early Miocene. Giant penguins were everywhere. This was just a normal way for penguins to be, apparently. Well, it's so interesting that they're all roughly similar in size yeah, they get up to a very similar size mm-hmm. they weren't all giant in many of these places they lived alongside smaller penguins but it was apparently common around the world for penguins to be that size and a 2017 study i found uh, also by gerald Mayer et al found that kumimanu that one of the the paleocene ones phylogenetically seems to be separate from other giant penguins, which suggests that this is also something that potentially evolved multiple times within penguins. Yeah, convergently among penguins. One and a half meters was a normal size for penguins. It was a thing for penguins to do for at least a time. We had a world full of, to us, surprisingly large penguins. Yes, which is fascinating. It it brings up bunches of questions. One of the ones that pops in my head is, why was that the cap? Like, mm-hmm. was there a, was there a something about that size? Was there a reason you didn't get bigger? Yeah. Like, why did, didn't did they? And we just haven't found. Yeah, them? why don't we have dolphin sized or you know beluga sized penguins? Well, it, we've talked about this before. That a lot of the time when you see the max size for groups, it tends to hit a plateau mm-hmm. rather than a peak. So like big cats today, and even generally big cats throughout history, the biggest big cats have generally been about the same size. Yeah, they're all within the same general weight class. We've talked about it with dinosaurs. Theropods and sauropods seem to have repeatedly hit supersized, but the supersized ones tend to be all around the same size. Which often brings up the question of, is it a physics thing? Is there a physical limitation that keeps you from getting bigger or that makes you ideal at that size or with these i assume a big part of it is is your lifestyle limiting Mm -hmm. if you're still having to get out of the water to lay eggs can you only haul yourself out of the water effectively and still lay eggs if you're only as big as an adult human right 
So, and, and I haven't seen anything talking about the limitations mm-hmm. of their size. I have seen some suggestions for the benefits of that size. Yeah, why are you getting so big? And mostly it's the obvious stuff. Bigger means you're better at competing mm-hmm. with other species for food and space. Bigger means you have more protection. It's harder for things to eat you. Also, I've seen it pointed out that if you're really trying to fill empty mosasaur and plesiosaur niches, then, yeah, get bigger. There's mm-hmm. food at that scale. But another important note is, you'll remember I've mentioned a couple times now, the bigger you are, the better you are at diving. The deeper you can go. Because you typically generally have a larger lung capacity and are potentially a stronger swimmer. Yeah, you're moving farther with each flap. <laughs> yeah, you're bigger and stronger. So these may have been super diving penguins. Emperor penguins go down to 500 meters how deep were the giant penguins going? Yeah, were they down there hunting... Gi- giant squids? Yeah, deep sea squids <laughs> and fish and stuff. Uh, and I think I read that emperor penguins can hold their breath for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So how long could they... Were these like diving for an hour? Right. Just disappearing for a while? That's so fascinating. Now is a really good time for me to point out that giant penguins were not the only giant penguins of the past. Okay. They were not the only giant penguin-like things. Oh. Penguins live in the Southern Hemisphere, but there was a group of equally sized penguin-like birds in the Northern Hemisphere called the Platopterids. Platopterids are convergent with penguins. Super penguin-like. Flippers for swimming. They're flightless. They have long bills. When you, I've seen them reconstructed. They're typically drawn black and white like penguins. Yep. Uh, Studies have found similar adaptations in the shoulder and arms. They're basically built like penguins, very convergent, not closely related. Uh, So I said that penguins are close to petrels, albatrosses, and and so on. Platopterids are thought to be closer to suliforms, which are uh, things like gannets. Also a group of plunge divers. Yep, yep, yep. So these are potentially two lineages that came from similar ancestors and evolved very similar habits and adaptations. Gannets are those ones from that famous Blue Planet scene where they're just dive bombing into the school of fish like arrows. Gannets, very famous plunge divers, just out of the sky. And many platopterids got up to or over one and a half meters tall. They were also this same size range. The big So weird. I love it. The big difference is that platopterids are known from the Northern Hemisphere, mainly the US, Canada, the West Coast particularly, and Japan. And they seem to have been around from the Eocene to the Oligocene. But platopterids don't seem to make it past the Oligocene. So late Oligocene to early Miocene is about when platopterids disappear, which is also the time that the giant penguins disappear. So at the same time in both hemispheres, the penguins and penguin-like birds vanish around the Oligocene-Miocene transition, which is also the Paleogene-Neogene transition around 20 million years ago. Now, I have seen a couple of suggestions as to why these giant penguins and penguin things I mean, it, have disappeared then. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's obvious. They both noticed each other, fought to the death, to mutual destruction. That's right. And it's a real, it's a tragic lesson for all of us to learn. Yes. This is, this is why we learn about history, so that, as to not repeat it. Right. If, if only they had started a Cold War <laughs> instead. <laughs> Climate change has been suggested <laughs> as 
a possible factor. All right, that might make more sense. Because uh, this is a time where we see cooling, although I have seen it pointed out that giant penguins seem to have done okay with earlier climate shifts. Mm -hmm. So maybe climate. But the more common explanation that I've seen is that this time period, late Oligocene into early Miocene, around 20 million years ago, is also where we see the rise of toothed whales and pinnipeds. Yeah, it is. Toothed whales, uh, we talked about back in episode 41, are things like orcas, dolphins, whales with teeth. Mm -hmm. And pinnipeds from episode 104, predominantly seals and sea lions. Yes. Things that not only compete with penguins, but will also eat penguins. Feed on penguins. I also saw it pointed out that this is also around the same time that we see penguins develop their modern style of flippers. Ah. That they develop a more modern uh, anatomy. So there may have been selective pressure on penguins at this time, either to get better at swimming... Mm Mm-hmm. So as to compete with, you know, you got to get your food and get out. Yeah, get to food first or not be food. <laughs> or to escape predators, <laughs> yes. exactly. So there is a shift as we move into the Neogene where we lose the giant penguins, which is very sad. And maybe penguins have a lot more to worry about in the oceans now all of a sudden. Yeah, mammals here to ruin the party. Although, and I haven't, I didn't see this specifically stated anywhere, but... To my memory, I think the Miocene is also when we see great white sharks show up. That lineage of sharks. That and sounds right. And Megalodon, I think, shows up around that. Yeah. Now, there may, there may have been other sharks that could have done the same thing earlier. So yes. I don't know if there's a correlation yeah. with sharks. But I'm thinking of what animals I've seen eat penguins yep. Yep. today. And yeah, sharks too. Yep. But yeah, no, like seals and, and orcas... Leopard seals and orcas are two big time predators of seals down south, down, down very south at, around Antarctica, but the deep south. Yeah, yeah. Th- that makes sense that they could really screw up the penguin paradise that yeah. was going on. Well, because what happened is that penguins were doing all great filling those mosasaur, plesiosaur niches until the next mosasaurs and plesiosaurs yeah. showed up. And it's, <laughs> it's they're like they were they were filling all these different size roles and they were doing great. And then the mammals came in and went, yes, but teeth. Right. And <laughs> teeth. Also, two two meters, you say. Yes. yes. Right. Because oh, 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 oh. G- giant aquatic uh, tetrapods came back. Yes. So perhaps that was when the giant penguins had to uh, not anymore. <laughs> and when you said mosasaurs coming back, I immediately pictured leopard seals. And yeah, yeah, that's that is not a bad compare. If you've ever seen how big a leopard seal actually is compared to a person and how just long they are. Yeah, they are very Mosasaur-esque. Yeah. And so are tooth whales. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the Mosasaur legacy lives on and it was bad news for the penguins. Yep. The Miocene is also, as I mentioned before where we see the oldest known, at least from what I read, it wouldn't surprise me if there has since been a discovery that means that what I'm about to say is wrong. (laughs) But from what I read, this was in the 2011 SEPCA paper, so this might be outdated. The oldest known modern group uh, of penguins. So the oldest member of a living genus is Sphiniscus muizoni from the mid-Miocene of Peru. 
which makes it an ancient banded penguin. Cool. And there's also Madrinornis mirandus, which is late Miocene Argentina, which is also thought to be closely related to modern penguins. So only in the last, you know, 15 million years or so do we have truly modern penguins. Yeah, what we know as penguins. And I want to sort of bring it to the present day and point out that there has been some evidence for historically extinct penguins. Mm -hmm. So penguins today, we have about 20 species. The great auk was famously driven to extinction, but we don't have any penguins who were famously driven to extinction, which is a little bit odd because they are flightless birds, many of whom live on islands. Mm -hmm. And we tend to be real mean to flightless birds on islands. But there has been some evidence of historically extinct penguins. Uh, Subfossils from New Zealand have been genetically identified as Megadiptes waitaha, which appears to be a species of Megadiptes penguins that went extinct within the last several centuries. And there are bones from Tasmania, which possibly are representing an extinct species. So there is some potential evidence for human-caused extinctions of penguins within the last, you know, thousand years or so. Sad but interesting. Sad but interesting. And indeed, penguins today are... I don't know that there are any penguins today that are extremely at risk. On the brink. But basically all penguins are vulnerable Yes, today. Because they tend... Uh, we have a, a history of harvesting them for eggs and oil. Yep. We have a habit of competing with them for their food. Yep. We will over-harvest fish and stuff. And... We are doing lots of awful things to environments, and among the environments that are bad to live in when humans are modifying and changing climates and everything are islands and coastlines and ice shelves. We're, we're also introducing lots of animals, lots of invasive species. This is true. To ground nesting birds. Yes. So vulnerable to new predators. So the fact that we have some potentially recently extinct penguins and the great auk, which very penguin-like, the the original penguin, penguin <laughs> classic, <laughs> should serve as a, a warning sign to us that, yeah, these are really cool animals that are potentially very vulnerable to the things we are doing to the world. Yeah, that we and, could potentially get rid of without trying too hard if we wanted to. And we already lost the giant penguins. Yeah. Isn't that enough? Haven't we suffered enough? <laughs> Listen, if we drive peng modern penguins to extinction, we're they're never going to re-evolve giant penguins. <laughs> all we have to do is wipe out all the seals and whales. Right. And then we can get our giant penguins back. <laughs> penguins are one of those groups where there's tons of fascinating things about them. This is the part of the episode where we would often say... And that's all we can fit. There's so much more to say. It's a real shame we had to leave a bunch out. But I feel slightly less bad about penguins because there's tons of documentaries about penguins. Yeah. Go watch, go to YouTube, and you'll just find tons of videos about penguins. Happy, fit, happy Feet 1 and 2. Watch Happy yep. Feet. Go watch, yeah. No, penguins are fairly well documented because they're so charismatic. Like, yeah. They're we, weird. They're we want to know about them. They're cute. <laughs> they're so cute. They're, they're uh, always dressed to entertain. Yep, they are always in their formal attire. <laughs> uh, they are just, they are quite personable. Like, the penguins at the aquarium were actually very social because they are social animals. 
Yeah. So they aren't very interactive. They're also very, well, they're aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. They, they gather in large groups. They're generally uh, black and white, which is sort of fun to see a giant group yeah. of black and white penguins. And they're weird. Yes. And they're so cool. They're expert. They are expert swimming birds, which is a very strange thing to be. I feel like uh, penguins often get the treatment that things like kangaroos get, where everyone knows what a penguin is. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows what a kangaroo is, so much so that it is very easy to overlook how bizarre these animals are. Right. How utterly alien to all other birds these birds are so strange just so fascinating in their utter uniqueness also i think we should point out in the early early part of the episode you mentioned that using their tails to support themselves make penguins uh somewhat like kangaroos Mm -hmm. i'd like to point out that the largest penguins in history have been about the size of the largest kangaroos yeah you're not wrong (laughs) two meters tall at least the largest today yes kangaroos so yes there were kangaroo sized penguins yes they're a fascinating group that have been surprisingly successful for how weird they are. Yeah. Like, this is often one of those things where it's like, and then here's the weird one. Right. Here's the platypus. Oh, the one that, that, the one bird that's gone, you know what? Ocean. I'm going for it. We're I'm doing going it. deep and I'm not flying anymore. And, and this group, no, this highly successful, fairly diverse, widespread, old group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because not only are they weird, but it's a good way to be a bird, evidently. Yeah. They're they're like snakes in that way. Yes. You did a thing that is super weird, and then you used it to be extraordinarily successful. Yeah. That should have pigeonholed you in a niche. Yeah, but it that didn't. should have penguin-holed you. Yeah. <laughs> now, before we wrap up our episode for the episode, I believe we have a patron question. We do! At a certain level, our patrons get to send in questions for us to answer right here on this tail end of the podcast. Will, what do we have today? We have a question from Dylan, who says, The NASA rover Perseverance will be X-raying rocks on Mars to detect the possibility of fossils hidden inside. If they are found, do we think paleontologists would be added to the ranks of NASA? That is a great question. And a great opportunity for us to slip in a little bit of extra news to discuss. Yep. Perseverance landed on Mars. Yeah, we get to nerd out about it. A new, we got another rover on Mars and it's a robot paleontologist. Yeah. It. I think it was February 18th. Yes. That it officially landed. Yes. Following in the legacy. So Spirit and Opportunity, uh, the twin rovers that launched, I think in 2004 or landed in 2004, were the ones that... Uh, first identified evidence of water, liquid water, having once existed on Mars. Yeah, these were the two solar-powered ones that were supposed to run for 90 days and then ran for years. Then Curiosity, which I think was 2012. That sounds right. Identified conditions on Mars that might have once supported life. So past conditions, you know, we now know there's like lake shores and stuff. Yeah, that found that it sure does seem like Mars was indeed potentially very Earth-like in its past. Perseverance, which just landed, is going to be the first one to actively search for signs of ancient life yes. on Mars. It's got a bunch of cool uh, equipment, but the the notable ones are, one, that it has a, a really precise microscopic camera. Mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. a camera that can look at microscopic things. 
<laughs> which it will be using in part to look for microbe fossils yeah. on Mars. And it's got spectroscopy equipment on it, which will shoot lasers at rocks and soil and then read the light signature to see if there are organic molecules, organic compounds in that specimen, which might hint at the past presence of living things. Yeah, it's vaporizing parts of the rock and then seeing what that vapor, the light that comes off of it, tells it about the rock. Yes. So this is a space robot paleontologist. Yep. Looking for signs of ancient life on Mars. So in that regard, Dylan, there are already paleontologists at NASA. Yeah! They're studying geology and, and environments of the past, and there's equipment up there to look for signs of ancient life. And when we talked about this topic in our episode, uh, Astrobiology. Episode 26. There are people who are kind of fulfilling the roles of paleontologists in NASA and in the astrophysics, and you know, at the uh, in the astronomy, you know, realm, mm-hmm. but they're typically called xenobiologists or astrobiologists, right. exobiologists. exobiologists, that they are looking for life or the past signs of life. So they're doing the same jobs. They're just not typically called paleontologists. Right. That's typically focused on earth fossils. Now, if they do find stuff, then there will be yet more need for paleontologists. Yeah. Now, I, I do know that uh, Perseverance is also planned to collect specimens yes. and store them to be picked up later and returned to Earth. It will be uh, taking core samples from the rock in little little vials, little sample tubes, and then actually depositing them and leaving them and noting the location on the surface of Mars. And uh, one video I saw with Mark Rover where he compared it to the, the rover poop mm-hmm. is it will be leaving a trail of samples behind it as it goes to be collected and yeah finally returned to earth yeah there's a there's i don't remember the name of the mission i think it has a name i think so that is a planned future mission to send something a, a craft to mars that will have equipment land pick up the specimens and then go back up into orbit and hitch a ride Back to Earth. Yes. Which is ridiculous. That would be the first time we've brought something back. The first time. The first time that humans have yes. brought Mars stuff to Earth. That we. <laughs> that we've brought something back. That uh, that wasn't gravity doing it. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't just launched here. And then we'll be able to study spe- samples from Mars that we hand-picked. That we, we robot arm-picked from Mars. And yeah, at that point, start bringing in the... Well, like the, the Archean paleontologists yes. yep. to identify potential signs of ancient life. And so that's really the order of things is if Perseverance finds what seems to be solid evidence for ancient, you know, signs of or fossils of ancient life, we have a mission to bring back samples mm-hmm. where we will further and even more rigorously examine it here on Earth. And then if it still seems like, yep. Sure does seem like Perseverance was right. Yeah. People with that background, with adequate backgrounds, Mm -hmm. who are also fit for all the rigors of space travel. Sure. Because (laughs) you still have to be an astronaut first. Space paleontologist. (laughs) Yep. Like, I love blowing people's minds when there's like height limits and stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. you can't, I'm too big to go to space. So like... You'd have to find a person who can be an astronaut who also 
is a paleontologist. Until then, we'll leave it to the robots. Yeah, what we're doing right now is we're sending a field crew. Yeah. We're sending a, go dig up some samples, you go bring them back, and then we'll examine them back here in and cambridge well yeah i was gonna say it's, it's like the earliest <laughs> yes, days of paleontology exactly. where the rich guys would send out a crew bring me some fossils find me some dinosaurs and then bring, send them back to me and i'll name every one of them a new species bring them to me so yeah already actual paleontologists working with nasa mm-hmm. plus robot paleontologists plus my oh my goodness if they actually find something I, I can't speculate on what will happen if we no. actually find signs of life on Mars. We could talk about this forever, yes. so I'm going to intentionally cut us off here. No, this is one of the coolest things that's happened ever. Go listen to episode 26, and then for good measure, listen to episode 100. But until then, uh, we hope you have enjoyed this uh, tangential conversation about space after our conversation about penguins. We hope you've learned a bunch. I learned a bunch about penguins in this episode. They're such... They're very cool, weird birds. Just nifty animals. They're just... I love them. So thank you to Dylan for your patron question. Thank you to all of our new patrons, all of our old patrons. Thank you to those who requested this topic. If you'd like to hear more about different topics, send them in. If there's more birds you want to hear about, if there's more whatever you want to hear about, we're always taking requests. Reach out to us in the normal ways. Find us on all the podcasty places. Check us out on YouTube if you like. Leave us comments. Leave us reviews. Join us on Patreon. Go to our Zazzle store. Check out all the different ways that you can find you participate in the common descent. <laughs> the many avenues to common descent. The common descent extended universe. <laughs> and with that, uh, I will sign off uh, by mentioning Penguin from Batman. Because I've made it the whole episode I know, without making it. I know. I, I think about that every now and then when we'll get part uh, a decent way into an episode. And I'll be like, yeah, we haven't made that reference. And I always assume that there's someone listening being like, are they not going? Are you just not going to make a The Penguin reference? <laughs> yeah, are we not going to do that at all? No, nope, apparently yeah, not. Apparently not. Not, not. It just didn't happen. Well, it's weird because I, I never want, I very rarely am like, all right, I've got to find a place for this. Mm-hmm. It usually just comes out as we're talking. Which means that there will be often moments where the obvious one just doesn't line up. Yep. So if anyone out there would like to give us more opportunities to make references to Batman's rogues gallery, request applicable episodes. We've done the penguin. We've done done, Crocs. We did Crocs. Uh, We've done bats for Man Bat. That's true. Uh, Uh, Crows? Yeah, we haven't done crows. Clowns. Uh, We could do a clowns episode. Yep. Um, So you... You think we did about cats. it. We did cats. We did cats. Yeah, we're really. Uh, we're yeah. We worked through his rogues gallery. All right, Spider Man. Sure, there we go. We can do scorpion. We haven't done rhinos. Rhinos, lizards. Yep. Uh, Goblins. We haven't done vultures. That that's true. We did venom. We did venom. And we did make the venom we reference. Did. Yes. No. Because I would oh. I would be darned <laughs> if we wouldn't make that reference. So there's a whole bunch of other ideas for you to request things for us. This is some classic Common Descent end of the episode rambling we're Absolutely, doing here. Absolutely, no. You tell us which Heroes Rogue Gallery of <laughs> you would like to hear about next. <laughs> Sounds good. And with that, uh, we will leave you uh, on that delightful thought. <laughs> and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. 
You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.